Checking in again with State Representative Jackie Chan of Quincy for another Techie Talk. How are you, Techie? Hey, not bad for a continually rainy week that we're enjoying after a very dry summer. I know, so gloomy and dreary, um, but not snowing. Well, uh, knock on wood, we still maybe like three months or so away, but this is New England. I mean, anything can change at any moment. And uh, it's, it's October already, October 5th. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, given what we've seen in Florida, I feel very lucky and grateful that this is all we have to deal with right now. Well, I mean, obviously, we got the remnants of any major storm south of us. Uh, but climate change is real. It's here. Uh, and it's going to continue in stronger storm intensities. Uh, as we saw, we had a very dry uh, summer up here. Actually, we're not the only place. A lot of places are very dry summer, especially brutal, brutal August around the world in the Northern Hemisphere in particular. And then now we're seeing these major storm in the tropical areas, uh, not just in the U.S., but also uh, in Asia and the locales. And I mean, uh, it was a direct hit on the Gulf side of Florida, which historically has been fairly sheltered. Um, most of those storms actually spin around and smack uh, Louisiana, Texas, that location as it spins around the Gulf. So having a basically a direct hit on a category near five, just you know, just on the edge of five storm, uh, you know, we can see exactly what it does to those uh, locations, which basically just there is no Fort Myers. I mean, it's it's amazing how uh, nature can literally wipe you off the map in in twenty four hours. Yeah, I mean, of course, it makes people wonder, you know, what if, God forbid, it happened here? And I don't know that, that really you can ever totally prepare for something like that. Yeah, there's some uh, advantages uh, coming up this location. I mean, it would have to be like, again, a, a nor'easter perfect situation because it follows the coast, uh, follows the Gulf Stream and, of course, the, the wind currents coming northbound. So that's why it's always kind of like an iffy thing you see on the, on the news about, you know, the potential locations. Computer modeling is much better than ever about probabilities of where it could potentially hit uh, New England. Uh, and uh, it's always drifted out to sea. Uh, fortunately, the eye of the storm keeps drifting further out or it just falls apart when it makes the mainland in the Carolinas. Uh, not to say it can't happen. It, it has been a long time since we've had um, a hurricane, a named hurricane hit us. We've had like, you know, big storms, but they weren't named storms. Um, but it's, you know, we still feel the impact of the wind as we saw this week. And, you know, we still feel the impact of the rain. Uh, and obviously we don't want rain in one deluge. We need gradual rain so the ground can absorb it, replenish our uh, well waters as well as our reservoirs. Uh, and we obviously don't want flooding on the streets as well. That defeats the point of trying to retain water for, for drinking, right? So... Uh, but you know th this will continue. I think that, uh, as we talked about this for many years in Superstorm Sandy and and uh, Katrina and so many others, um, you know we're going to continue to see a heavy activity uh, during hurricane season. It's it's just going to get more intense. It's going to be interesting to see what it does uh, to things like um, insurance rates. Well, uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, our those of us on uh, with a mortgage that requires FEMA insurance. Uh, you know, that money goes into the big pool at D.C. for FEMA relief. And uh, it's now likely going to be spent down in Florida. Now, how many homes get rebuilt off that FEMA money? I couldn't tell you. I know uh, that uh, along the Mississippi, they've used that money to rebuild homes that should never have been rebuilt, quite frankly. Um, and uh, Mississippi, you know, we artificially try to keep it from changing course. Rivers change course by nature. 
uh, over time. They they move east, west, you know, they, they, well, depending where you are in the hemisphere, north, south, depending where you are. It's, um, I know it sounds weird, but, you know, rivers flow to, to the center of the world, not the away from the center. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, we've been doing this a lot. So a lot of obviously complaints up here is, is very simple to the federal government. I mean, we're paying all this FEMA money. We get a, we get the, uh, huge disasters like we did um, a few years neck a few years back at Adam Shore and House Neck when the seawalls all came down and uh, you know how come we couldn't access the FEMA money the same way for rebuild as quickly and easily it seems as those in the self um, you know something really unjust about this that you know obviously the federal delegations issue uh, but I mean you know your FEMA money is insurance money is going to be heavily subsidized uh, the Gulf of Florida uh, and not everybody in that area has their own homeowner's insurance. Um, you know, I know a lot of people have perhaps second homes there or they moved there for retirement. Uh, you know, obviously they're devastated uh, from all this. Um, but we're talking about maybe five years, just a conservative uh, number um, on potentially bringing those communities back to any form they were before. I mean, they have no electricity right now. I mean, you know, rebuilding a grid structure, particularly in a waterlogged location, is going to be very time consuming. There's no electricity, which means you get don't get water easily either if the treatment plant has no power. Um, and uh, you got mold. Essentially, right. One thing I didn't realize that the governor mentioned is that Massachusetts is, was processing uh, unemployment claims for the state of Florida. And he said that that happened during the pandemic, too. Yeah, Florida, uh, he's a, I was watching a news article about this back uh, during the pandemic about how people were having so much trouble accessing unemployment claims. And uh, it turns out uh, every state, of course, has their own uh, electronic system, has their own web portals to process all their different human services programs. You know, any programs like RMV, we just talked to RMV a little bit before uh, offline before we came on. And, and you know, all this other stuff has been a 21st century, you know, web-based cell phone world. And uh, the quality and ease of the system um, determines uh, whether or not people are willing to go through applying for a program. Mm. It's an interesting thing. I think we can understand this. If it's easy to utilize we're more inclined to want to go through the process. The more steps and complications and difficulties, the less inclined we want to utilize the process. So one very interesting thing about some states, which I will not get into too much of politics about, um, if they want to discourage people from actually participating in a government program, they just make it really difficult. And the web portal is one of the best ways to do it because people are more like you surrender. It's a non-human so it's not like you're going to go complain to a supervisor because most people won't think of that. And we live in such an electronic age. It really, it's part of our psyche now. And the, uh, certain governments in the U.S. have figured this out and uh, heavily abused it. You know, uh, while here, when people couldn't access the portal, uh, the entire legislative body was jumping down um, the governor's people uh, nonstop throughout COVID regarding multilingual access, regarding failing uh, web portals, regarding insufficient Phone calls, make sure we appropriate more money for manpower on an emergency basis. Um, you know, we we took a, a lot of uh, responses uh, that most of you don't realize uh, during the 2020 COVID period where, you know, we kept uh, understanding the problems with the overload of the system, not just that unemployment, but all through the human service system. 
And then the legislature where we could respond, we did mostly with financial assistance, uh, providing a demographic information, because obviously we know our districts better than others um, in the administration. You know, we live close to live close to our people, right? So you know, they get we give them a lot of feedback, you know, contacting media outlets, you know, doing a lot of things that we can to be a cooperative partner with the governor on getting these human services out there uh, to the best of our ability. Um, not all legislatures and all governments are the same. And uh, what and honestly, you don't know what you don't know until you don't have it anymore. You experience something different. So people, you know, in states like Florida figure, well, they're like that in every state. Well, it's not. Um and the uh, quality uh, of what you're paying for varies from where you are. If you pay very little of anything, you're going to get very little of something back, right? Mm. And uh, obviously, the voters keep us accountable. So, I mean, we lose our seats if we're not delivering service as well. Um, doesn't matter what party of the state you're in. Interesting. Yeah. It was probably a shock to a lot of folks down there who were from here. Uh, and we're used to, you know, uh, more services or at least responsive services and then to find out, uh, oh, things are different here. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why a state like New Hampshire, for example, is slowly changing in its government. I mean, not like it's a rapid change, but I mean, have slow changes and because the legislature has to respond to all these Massachusetts and other transplants living on the southern border, which is why New Hampshire is such a swing state in, in presidential elections. Uh, but a population shift to a location may or may not influence local governments to change how they provide services if there's a certain threshold of voters available. Mm. And you're right, people, you know, I, like all of us, we talk to people and you know, until they actually need something, don't realize how much they didn't have access to it until they actually try to do it somewhere else. Um, and it's no different from other countries, for example. I mean, countries that have uh, universal type health care, you know, find our healthcare system very baffling. Mm-hmm the U.S. But at the same time, though, we just, you know, anybody wants a vaccine, come and get it. You know, other places were much more, much more restrictive. And, uh, you know, the U.S., again, I mean, we had enough vaccine to vaccinate you six times over, uh, potentially, uh, because obviously these things expire. And secondly, uh, we didn't know which ones were going to be effective. So we're hedging our bets on everything. Uh, even other wealthy nations do not have the financial capacity nor the industrialization capacity to do that with, with COVID vaccines. Yeah, we're spoiled on that front. People just don't realize how, how spoiled we are. Yeah, it's true. Can we talk a little bit about the um, speaking of Florida, the the migrants down at Joint uh, Base Cape Cod? And I know that the governor said earlier this week that they'll be closing that down by the end of this week. Yeah, I got a little bit of an update on that this week from the governor's staff. They sent out an email, just just a brief update. Um, I think everyone's aware that. Basic human services have been provided, food, water, translation services, understanding what's going on with the different situations, trying to find appropriate ways to send them wherever they need to send. Um, 49 people were initially there. I believe the last email I got tells me that in the 39 and they tend to uh, have the place resolved or at least uh, next intermediate resolution for some folks. Uh, the state is not breaking up families. The state is keeping the family units together as they're trying to work their way through this. Some of these migrants will be going back uh, to the state of origin because they have jobs there. Um, they have a real life. Uh, and uh, let's do some clarification again on this. The reason we're using the word migrants here uh, is because these folks are here. Uh, uh, how do I put this? Some of these folks are here under asylum status t- uh, from Venezuela, which you may or may not know is under kind of an interesting civil war. Um, and the current presidency has no problem just killing a lot of people. 
down there. So uh, just, just you say something, they shoot you. It's pretty straightforward um, what's going on down there. So, uh, you know, these families are here uh, on a um, provisional basis by the federal government, you know, as asylum seekers, knowing the situation in Venezuela, um, they have court dates, they have meetings with their own attorneys, they have like a life that was uprooted and brought here um, under false promises. Uh, and the Commonwealth is doing everything they can to um, see if we can get to a resolution on their you know, immediate needs and then you know, hopefully move them into a, a situation where you can get a more permanent solution. I, I'm being very vague here because it's every, every, they're not telling us the details of each family. Right. Um, I do not know what each family's needs are. I do not know what individual situations. I do not know what the medical care is. I, I don't know what the next appointment for immigration judges. I have no idea. But you notice this, you know, is an interesting uh, conversation because the, these are not undocumented uh, immigrants. These are people who had are here uh, on a legal status by the federal government um, because of the nature of the political situation in Venezuela. That's right. There is already a paper trail. They were already in the system, which makes me wonder why they were targeted. It seemed, or at least it seems that they were targeted, um, you know, to uh, to undergo this transfer up here to Massachusetts. Yeah, I mean, the criminal investigation of Texas would be very intriguing. I, the Department of Justice is should be looking at this. I mean, the DOJ doesn't tell anybody anything until they're ready to come get you. Just because right. they're quiet doesn't mean they're not looking at you. As I no, they, they don't want you to know on purpose. Yeah, yeah. When they, they show up, they got you dead to rights. I mean, the DOJ does not show up unless they got you. So I'm sure they're looking at this. And uh, obviously, you saw there's uh, class action suits from the uh, from the migrants, uh, from lawyers up here against the state of Florida and anyone else they can find that's connected to the situation. Um, I can only speculate why to pick these folks. I think one of the simplest reasons because they're uh, in the system and easy to find. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably true as well. Speaking of um, systems, uh, can we talk a bit about a ballot question number four here in Tacky uh, regarding uh, driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants? Yeah, again, ballot questions that are confusing. So <laughs> if I can remember this correctly, a yes vote, a yes vote means that you agree to have undocumented Folks that have driver's license under very specific conditions. If I remember this correctly, these yes, no things are very confusing. So the reason I say it's confusing is because the legislature uh, approved over the governor's veto uh, to allow undocumented persons to have driver's licenses if they meet very specific conditions, of which they must have a foreign, uh, their country of origin passport that's still valid or a consulate identification uh, confirming their identity. They have to pass a driving school exam. I mean, you have to complete driving school, which actually none of us are required to do, just let you know, um, and uh, have to pass the driving test. And uh, they get a Massachusetts uh, driver's license. Uh, they cannot get a real ID license. Uh, for, interesting enough, 50% of Massachusetts residents does not have real ID. They're, st- they're bringing their passports to fly. Uh, for whatever reason, it's not popular uh, to get a real ID uh, among residents. So uh, just keep that in mind. It's it's more common to realize. Also, New York, uh, Vermont, and Connecticut have already approved uh, undocumented driver's licenses, not in the same format that we have, uh, but they're already uh, driving on our roads. I mean, you know, people from New York, Connecticut, and Vermont 
go through Massachusetts a lot. So you're probably already on road with an undocumented uh, person someplace, sometime with a driver's pilot, pilot driver's license. And then there's also a public safety matter. Uh, you want people to actually know how to drive to drive. I know this is Massachusetts. I know you can all like can hear the jokes now about Massachusetts drivers, but you know, people that go to driving school generally should have better knowledge of the road uh, prior to the driving test. Um, and also uh, insurance. Uh, insurance companies do not like it when you have an unlicensed driver driving a car, even if the car is insured. And I'm inclined to pay out. You won't want to talk about that part, but it's, I mean, if I'm an insurance company and undocumented driver, unlicensed driver is driving my car, I don't care if you're documented, undocumented, where you're from, but you don't have a driver's license driving a car. Insurance company is going to be like, do I really want to pay this claim? Right. And that could make you liable if you own, you know, property or other assets uh, that could put those on, on the line. Yeah. So let's just say your brother, you know, drives your car, his license is lapsed, driving your car, his name's not on your insurance. And uh, he's driving your car normally, even though his name's not on your insurance, as long as the person's not in your household, something happens, you know, your insurance will cover his actions. But he's driving on no driver's license, let's say for any reason, doesn't matter, expired, OUI, doesn't matter. Um, your insurance company's going to look at that and think about, do you really want to pay the claim or, right. you know, person that's been harmed by their car accident come after you directly. So, so undercover driver's license actually has some interesting public policy issues regarding safer and better drivers. It, it, it provides a remedy for those that are harmed in car accidents. People are hyper-focused on documented part, but no one talks about the victims mm. of the accident at all. You notice these news articles say nothing about the victims. Uh, they just hyper-focus on the undocumented part and act like oh, the victims are fine. No, they're not. They're not getting recovery. But they're going to try to get recovery, but it's going to be a fist fight with the insurance company for a very long time. Because right. the insurance company claim illegal driver, not covered, right? So, um, you know, they're going to fight you. Uh, and maybe you'll win, but you're going, to, you're going to just fight you. So by the time you're deep in debt, with whatever uh, uh, hospital bills, property bills, whatever associated with it, um, so, you know, it can get pretty ugly. Um, and, uh, you know, also, you know, law enforcement, you know, like the district attorney, you know, Michael Morris, each police chief Keenan, you know, they support this provision because they need to know who you are. So if you're punching into the system through the RMV, they can look you up right away and confirm identity. So if you have an outstanding, let's say court date or a standing AMB or a standing anything, uh, it's part of the, uh, the government, uh, state's, uh, criminal database system through your driver's license, as opposed to just giving fake IDs, fake fake um, anal uh, aliases, uh, if you mm -hmm. get So this actually helps law enforcement out that they have anything outstanding they can bag and tag, as opposed to giving like five different names and law enforcement doesn't know who you are and what they're gonna do with it, it's for a minor infraction. So it's like, you, know, you, you got to pull them for a stop sign. They're gonna drag you to jail? No, you know, they're gonna try to you know talk their way out over fake identity. Um, but you have no way to confirm. Maybe this person's, you know, has a warrant out. Right. I guess the biggest question I have is if, you know, if you, if you are um, undocumented, are you going to try and get a license out of fear that that may, you know, trigger some immigration issues? Well, the state doesn't uh, do that. We don't uh, chase down immigration cases. Uh, that's a federal jurisdiction issue. Um, unless you receive special uh, permission from ICE through a licensing process, which is actually pretty involved, you know, 
you don't. I mean, we had actually a small division of state police help ICL back to the Mitt Romney administration, which the whole Patrick continued for a little while, but they became like not worth the money because we're being paid for it. <laughs> I mean, why are you spending our money doing your job? Uh, hmm. I think everyone understands that too. Um, and uh, local police departments you know, do not enforce immigration laws. They just process and appear as a undocumented immigrant. They notify ICE, but they won't detain you longer than the required to detain you uh, that's reasonableness to the danger you are, or unless otherwise stipulated by law. Mm-hmm. So uh, if they don't show up, you, you know, you're okay in, in the sense that they're going they, to hold you because they're not immigration, they're not immigration lawyers, they're not immigration folks, they have no, they have, they have no power over that part of the law. So, um, you know, should people be concerned? Probably not if you're undocumented uh, to be in the state system. Uh, your driver's license will not have a so-called scarlet letter, so it's not right. like identified very early on in places like California and others that did this, that put scarlet letters on letter on, on driver's licenses and it created a whole lot of chaos uh, because apparently have more than one type of scarlet letter in some states hmm. <laughs> on your license. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was interesting. If you look back like 15 years ago, if you were trying to figure this out. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously um, if you don't have uh, identification that meets the state law, uh, it, you, you're no good. So, for example, let's take these migrants from Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's no guarantee any of them have any passports mm-hmm. because they fled a country. And uh, people watching this are thinking, well, everybody has a passport. Not really. I mean, passports are not that common if you're not a regular traveler overseas. And, uh, you know, and if you're running, if you're from a government that doesn't have, you know, great um, services or, you know, a corrupt dictatorship. Uh, who wants to control the population, passport access doesn't happen. Right. So if you're a political asylum seeker, uh, you are not likely to get an easy passport unless you are part of the political system or, um, you know, you, you got these services done before you became a political advocate against your country. So right. yeah. uh, it's, it, I think people all have this like notion that everybody's got passports. And I mean, I'm pretty sure that when people know people here don't have passports. It's not like it's a conversational coffee. Do you have a passport? I mean, do you have a real ID? I mean, you know, people, it's not like we talk about that at the, at the coffee. Oh, virtual water cooler these days, I suppose. <laughs> no one's in the office in many ways still. So, right. I mean, it's kind of one of those things, kind of like degree of like assumption that it isn't really there. So, but like, for example, the migrants that came, you know, they didn't have a passport. They can't get it, uh, these driver licenses. And, uh, if they go to a uh, Venezuelan consulate, they're going to get arrested on the spot. So that's mm. not. Enough. So there's an example of a group that, you know, are here uh, on this quasi legal status. Uh, they that are unlikely to get a Massachusetts license. Um, the state does recognize a lot of visa statuses uh, to uh, get a license, but it's really complicated. We discovered. Um, mm. And then there's also a couple of other funny things. One is during COVID-19 height, you know, the federal government was also a mess. And uh, we were having constituent call problems that they, people couldn't renew their licenses because the visa applications renew will hold up. So you're doing oh. renew and they couldn't get a license because the state doesn't recognize an expired visa. So they couldn't get the licenses renewed. This actually resolves that problem as well because people with visas here will have valid foreign passports. So that, that actually solves that problem because for that little gap of time until the visa is renewed, you know, you're technically undocumented for a while. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then um, 
there's also this red herring going around saying that, you know, you need a driver's license to vote. Well, that's complete and total fiction. I don't know where this one came from. I mean, we do have uh, automatic motor registration and RMV, but it's des- they're designed to weed out people to duplicates, people who have moved, people who do not have citizenship status because it's run through the central voter database systems in here and DC regarding social security number ID checks. So for example, my nephew got his driver's license. He did register to vote before, but he went through the system. He didn't check off not to uh, be put in the system. So he's registered twice, but the system's going to kick one of the registrations out right? because he's already registered to vote. So there's enough safeguards in place that is a low probability uh, that uh, that somebody could uh, get a dr- uh, ability to vote through a driver's license. And um, again, driver's licenses have never been a prerequisite to register to vote, uh, nor are they a requirement to vote. Because if that was true, uh, a lot of people who are, uh, have resident ID cards who mm-hmm. do not drive uh, would not be able to vote. Uh, and there's a lot more than you realize. And because not everyone age uh, 18 to 20 gets a license all the time. You know, some people will wait um, because they're public transit oriented. Mm-hmm. Uh, folks that are public transit oriented and also know uh, people of a generation long gone, but people still alive that never got a license because uh, of gender bias regarding allowing people to drive, namely women. Uh, people in that remember uh, women were largely discouraged from driving. Yes, my grandmother didn't get her driver's license until she was 50 years old. And my mother was, you know, in her late 20s. So yeah, it was it was it was more uncommon then than it is now, certainly. Yeah, and those people could vote. Right. So I mean, this is such bogus red herrings that people instinctively go for. And if we, as you just point out, you know, a lot of people's real lives um, have nothing to do with driver's license and voting. Of course, the other question that's really uh, uh, making headlines is question one regarding the so-called millionaires tax. And it's, it's all over the TV on both sides of that. Yeah. And you saw the globe today, too, regarding, uh, you know, how the money would be spent. So. All right. Here's how I explain this. And you guys can decipher if I'm making any sense, because it's it's just my point of view on, on how this stuff works. So. One of the problems with question one, the first time they tried to do this as a uh, ballot initiative change in the law was that the Supreme Judicial Court said that you cannot use a general law to tell the legislature how to spend money. It's a constitutional power. It's written very similar to the U.S. Constitution because the U.S. Constitution is based on the Massachusetts Constitution. That's why it is so similar in so many places regarding structure of government. He's up for the governor's council. They didn't do that. So I don't, <laughs> which I think was a wise move by, by uh, John Adams. Like, huh, we should do this governor's council thing on the federal level. Not a good idea. So, um, <laughs> which is a whole conversation for a different day about the yes. governor's council. Um, but, uh, you know, the Supreme Court is right. Unless you rewrite the powers of the legislature, you know, we, the legislature has a lot, basically full discretion about appropriation. Um, taxation and expenditure of funds, right? So uh, they now went to a constitutional provision, which requires the legislation to vote on two different sessions, which put it on the ballot this year for you all to decide what you think about this 4% for every dollar over $1 million a person earns in income. And uh, there's two things here that are, I think, confusing folks. And we'll take um, the spending one first. So it claims that 
the legislature is forced to spend on transportation and education. If you open your red book and read it, it doesn't exactly tell you how much we're spending on each. And it's still subject to appropriation. That's and, right. And the reason is this. If they wanted this legislature to mandate um, spending to specific things, they would have to cite it very specifically. Name me the general law. You know, name me the entity. You have to, and that stuff doesn't exist in the Constitution. It isn't like the Department of Education exists in the Constitution. Chapter 70 education funding does not exist in the Constitution. Those are general laws. And the Constitution can't cite a thing that keeps changing because general laws change with the legislature. You know, when I'm long gone and dead, I'm sure you know a new state rep is going to change the law that I mean that the Constitution can't make permanent because it doesn't, it's a fluid. Think of different generations of legislatures, right? So when I'm long gone and dead, some other state rep from here are going to change the law that I probably changed now, and they're going to change it again, right? That's the nature of legislatures. Um, or otherwise, we'd have to actually rewrite the section of powers of the legislature of how to operate. But again, it's still run across the same problem, define transportation, define education. Right. So I've said this to other advocates, and they don't always believe me. But the legislature can always use this money as a new floor for that funding, as opposed to supplement existing. So we can move money around. So what I mean by that, let's say I have, for the sake of easy math, $10 million in something. And uh, we've committed $10 million over 10 years at $10 million for whatever this program is. But the law, the Constitution says that, you know, you're going to spend on education, transportation. Let's say we use education for ease. So $10 million is education every year for 10 years. Well, I would just take part of the ballot initiative change and make that the new floor. And whatever the difference is, I'll spend somewhere else, but the number won't change from 10 million. So let's say I get, a, I get $1 million from the ballot question for education. So as opposed to making it 11 million, I'll just use um, that 1 million for the new floor to make it 10 and I'll take that uh, 1 million on the top and move it somewhere else, keeping it still $10 million. Does it say that in the law that you can do that? It doesn't say that we can't either, because it doesn't cite exactly where the funding goes as a generic term. Okay. So it could be for school breakfast. It could be for chapter 70. It could be for special education. It could be for classroom safety. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what they mean by education, right? So the legislature has still a lot of discretion what it means. And also, uh, like I said, if I have money coming in, they know is dedicated to one so-called location. Um, it doesn't. It creates a surplus spending in that area, and I would just strip off the top section and then reallocate that surplus simply itself, keeping it level funded. Okay. All right. It, it, yeah. It's just like you get. It's like you win the lottery at home, right? Let's say you you're at home and you uh, you win like a thousand bucks. Well, I mean, you can use that thousand bucks to go in your savings account. Or you can use that thousand bucks to spend money on something else. But if you're budgeted for, let's say, you know, $100, um, you know, $1,000, let's say a budget for $1,000 and some expense, you use your lottery winnings, you know, help pay for that. And then uh, let's change the number. Let's say $1,500 in expense. You can use $1,000 of winnings, pay 1000 out of 500 and they can reallocate the remaining $1,000 someplace else as opposed to giving $2,500 or something. I see. Okay. It makes sense. It's a little confusing. It's hard yeah. to like a whiteboard. Yeah, no, I, I see. I see. I see where you're going with that. Um, so is that a good thing or a bad thing, do you think? 
Well, I suppose the way you look at it, I mean, you know, giving a legislature more money is not inherently bad. I think people have this perception that it's inherently bad where, you know, the vast majority of that funds actually goes back to cities and towns and direct programs uh, and grants and, and direct services. You know, on the other side, you know, from my standpoint as a legislature, you know, you know, we want as much flexibility as possible to, to be fluid at the changing times we live in. So when recessions hit and uh, we saw that with COVID and the, the fact we had rainy day funds available, we were able to shift money around really rapidly to beef up unemployment services for mm-hmm. 52,000 people in a month, servicing 14,000 plus unemployment applications. Um, we were able to shift resources rapidly you know, into the Medicare trust fund system to, to keep the hospitals floating through 2020 COVID crisis. Um, and I think we're still kind of, we float them through the same way in 2021. Let's see how the 2022, 23 winter goes. Um, during the marathon bombing, we were able to move $50 million, I believe, really quickly, you know, straight into public safety and prepare to do more allocations and informal sessions as needed uh, to address the marathon bombing as uh, we went through that lockdown manhunt. So the legislature, you know, you know, needs that flexibility. Um, and you know, I cite some very emergency examples, but I could cite you a few other more. You know, back to my Senate staffing days uh, when crisis hit, including 9/11, um, the McCormick Building environmental disaster inside mm-hmm. of it, um, the homeless uh, extra cold polar vortex year, uh, where we had to get people off the streets and around the state very quickly. Uh, we had to do uh, emergency funding for um, homeless shelters to supplement their services really fast. Um, so it isn't, you know, like you guys don't always realize exactly how much we do um, because no one talks about it. It's, it's not in the press. Unless you ask me like in these formats, you have no idea. But I, I've been around a year or two uh, watching this all unfold and, and actually living through a lot of it as well. Um, so... Yeah, you always want a legislature that has some flexibility. Now, will you guys decide to create an additional tax? It was up to you, which leads to the second half of a very confusing question. You know, what is income? Right. Yeah, that's that seems to be the area that's most confusing. It is very confusing. Yeah. So a lot of people that have uh, very popular now is these S-Court, C-Court, limited partnerships and other forms that uh, allows you some corporate shield protection, but allows pass through money directly to you. Now, that does not mean a corporation where an S corp can't create a salary structure, meaning that you get salary from the S corp as opposed to being passed through uh, benefits straight to you. But you also can create a lot of deductions and other tax mechanisms that you know can reduce your tax burden while you're receiving income from your business. Mm-hmm. Our, uh, I'm sure there's an accountant you could probably bring on to explain all these little these little mechanisms. Most people don't realize that. Uh, can help resolve that and get you beneath the million dollar threshold. So you don't actually have to um, get that million. You could come in 99955. Right, right, yeah. So, uh, you know, will that be effective? On the flip side, it becomes a little more complex when you deal with things like capital gains and people selling homes and and, and stocks. So, I mean, you know, the, the hyper uh, revenue increase, you've got this past uh, fiscal year is a combination of inflation uh, so because sales tax is tied to uh, inflation, the higher inflation, the more sales tax we collect, but also a lot of cap gains, uh, not just from sales of homes, but because 2021 was an incredible stock boom, that mm-hmm. cap gains was just insane in terms of revenue. Uh, 2022 does not look like it's going to be a good year for capital mm-hmm. gains. 
So we're not going to see a whole lot of it uh, in the next fiscal year. Right. Uh, yeah, reflecting the volatility of uh, the market and the economy and taxation is subject to the to the whims of the economy and uh, the challenges and complexities and all that entails uh, with uh, our economy and how that works. So, you know, this, this becomes an interesting question on, you know, on a personal level, does it affect you? And that's kind of the, the proponent's real position is not just necessarily the spending component, but, you know, what does it mean to you personally if you vote yes for this? Uh, and I think that's how people are going to look at this the most. They're not going to think about Tom Brady uh, when they're uh, trying to decide this question. They're going to think about whether it does it impact yourself. And I think they'll be the deciding factor. So yeah. you should all think about as you're deciding this really is about capital gains um, and uh, the impact it has regarding uh, your sale of home, um, dealing with estates of loved ones. Um, if you have a portfolio, and I'm sure your portfolio is terrible right now, um, you know, what happens if the market shifts up again? Um, but again, I, I think a question when at the end of the day, it's really about how this impacts you individually. And I just kind of laid out the spending and some of the complexity of the taxation components to it. You guys can decide what's best for you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting for sure. Speaking of um, Constitution Tech, I wanted to ask you, there's a um, proposal here in Quincy to implement a residency requirement for new city employees, the mayor's questioning whether or not that's constitutional or not. And um, I, I didn't know either. Well, Boston has this. I think everybody knows about the famous Boston situation, which also has a um, uh, grandfathering clause for people prior to the implementation of that. And it's been there for a very long time, but there's some really interesting unintended consequences I've observed. One, the cost of living in Boston is crazy. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows, you know, to get any kind of rent, the rent's nuts, right? And home valuation's insane in many parts of Boston. And government doesn't pay that well. I mean, it really doesn't compare this compared to the cost of living you're in. So most people, you know, starting salaries is going to be well under 50 grand uh, at an entry-level position in the city of Boston. Where are you going to live, right? And right. I speak that challenge in the state house too, because my staff does not make a lot of money. Yeah. So the, you know, public, public transit and the red line in Green Line and others is essential for people who work in Boston who are not making, you know, $250,000. You have to make a lot of money living in Boston uh, if you're a recent resident. Uh, you know, public transit is crucial from lower cost rental areas and home cost areas, you know, for commuter rail public transit to get there, which then you need to measure So that's, that's a severe uh, con uh, unexpected consequences. And the city tries to resolve that by hiring contractors. For example, the Boston City Council, I know this was true because I, I you know, spent time with the employees in the council, not naming names and ratting people out. But I mean, she, can't, she, she, in this case, she cannot be an employee because she doesn't live in Boston, but she's on contract. Her case, it's fine. It seems that she can do that, but not, not everyone can afford not having benefits, right? Right. So, you know, that, that's question one. Question two is an interesting constitutional question about the freedom movement. So people migrate all over the U.S. to work. This is... <laughs> I'm a memorial from the days of the colonial era, right? Where you, know, you couldn't get a job in Massachusetts, you tried your luck in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania couldn't lock out Massachusetts people from getting work. It violates, right. it violates the Commerce Clause. The US Commerce Clause is not necessarily just freedom of trade, but freedom of trade includes freedom of work. I mean, trans, trans, to be able to transport yourself from place to place. So residency requirement uh, in the municipality has, in Boston, I don't believe has been challenged to my knowledge, but I could be wrong about that. I'm sure the newspapers will pick that up before I will. Uh, but it, it does inhibit um, 
freedom to live and travel to work. Mm, interesting. Yeah. You know, people are like, oh, well, it should be residents first to get paid. Well, one, you get assuming there's no residents to want the job. But not everybody mm-hmm. wants to work in government, people. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> no, a matter of fact, we've seen people leaving the, the public sector uh, because the private sector pays better. Right now, it's much better in the private sector. We're in that cycle. You're absolutely correct. So, um, you know, what we're down to is uh, you look at people in government. I mean, the question is, do you want to? How long you want to wait to be able to move the food chain or do you want to get out and uh, make more money someplace else using your government experience? Right. You know, if you're under 30 years old, yeah, that's a legit question. You know, about you know, where can you go? Now you put a residency requirement, the city is also not that cheap to live in, but you could also um again, you know, use the public transit uh to get back and forth to uh to work uh, in the city. Um and also limits the size of your talent pool. Yes, absolutely true. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting. It's just in committee now and under review, so it hasn't been um, voted on yet. Yeah, it's a lot of questions. I mean, you want to limit the size of your talent pool. We're a city of 102,000 people. Boston's a city of 700,000 people. But now, you know, you're going to do residency requirement. You have to force people to move here someplace in a, in a tight housing market, you know, whether it be rent or buy, uh, you know, and obviously you're going to have to vote in the city. So, I mean, you know, got to prove you live here right voting is one way to prove you live in, in the city and then you know your town pool shrinks so what if you need a structural engineer and there's none to be found in the city because no one wants to work for the city um do you end up just contracting it out or right. do you uh create new exemptions and just constantly create new exemptions to to basically meet the rent requirement ridiculously useless yeah it was tried in quincy 20 years ago as i recall and it and the council voted it down uh, yeah for those reasons yeah yeah it comes up every so often and you know what hopefully whether just cited is something the council's already talked about or people bring up to the council again people love the idea because you know quincy residents first but is it truly quincy residents first if we don't get the best talent right yeah all questions, no answers right now. <laughs> no, I'm not the city council, so. <laughs> no, you are not. You are the state rep uh, for the second Norfolk district. And how do we get a hold of you, Jackie? 617-722-2014. 617-722-2014. I am running staff in the office and uh, hit a button. You get to someone and we'll we'll sort it out ourselves in voicemail. Um, T-A-C-K-Y dot C-H-A-N at mahouse.gov, tacky dot chan at mahouse.gov. Feel free to email or actually have an email box that's reasonably sized right now. Uh, very happy I can actually sort my email properly. Uh, we always prioritize uh, constituent services first. I have a policy matter. Yes, we do see them. I do log them and I'm aware. Of them. Um, you know, obviously state representative uh, Tacky Chan Facebook account. You know, I post stuff up there. Uh, you know, some, some places I've been and uh, some useful numbers. Uh, obviously, Tacky Chan uh, Twitter. I'm at Tacky Chan to Elon Musk decides that my Twitter account doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> love these bear in the in the way they think, don't you? Um, yeah, yeah, he's going to try to broker peace in Ukraine, I hear. And then, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Um, uh, so we got that available, uh, and of course, you know, techychan.org. Um, we're still, again, as we move into the new cycle, we're continuing to do these updates in the winter time, and we'll have a hopefully a better and newer and updated content going to 2023.
Okay, we look forward to that and look forward to checking in next week. Ashley, Joe, you have a good uh, Columbus Day weekend, I believe, is coming up. And, um, you know, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jackie.